Good morning and welcome to Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and with me here today is Matthew, co-hosting once again. And we've got a lot of big stories lined up today to talk about. Um, We have the case of the alleged second solar generation lawsuit. We also have the... What were the two other stories, Matthew? Both in South Australia this week. Um, The Premier's changing wording of certain holidays in legislation and the others the council's um, reaction to the recent voice referendum. Yep. Okay, and we'll so, launch into the first story. Matthew, you want to read through it? Yeah, so we'll start off with the Premier of South Australia. So this comes from the Daily Mail. It's titled, South Australia Premier attacked for removing the words Anzac Day from list of annual public holidays on Australian. A former Liberal MP has slammed the South Australian government for moving Anzac Day, Christmas and the King's Birthday from the state's annual holiday list. Nicole Flint, now Sky News political commentator, called Premier Peter Malinorkis' Labor government un-Australian because of the changes made in its public holidays bill 2023. The new bill replaces the old Holidays Act of 1910 and has controversially removed any references to Anzac Day, Christmas and the King's Birthday. Dates for each will instead be marked, and the old listing for Anzac Day is now referred to as 25 April, a day fixed as a public holiday. Ms Flint is fearful that the subtle change will have the same snowballing effect as the Gillard Government Sex Discrimination Amendment Act of 2013, which removes the definition of a woman. Yeah, so jumping right in, um, first thing that comes to mind is that this is just part of the, you know, ongoing sort of scrubbing clean of any sort of Australian culture, um, which yeah, is probably going to be necessary as we we increase uh, in multiculturalism, as uh, seems to be the government's intent. There's not much worth for an Australia Day in 2023 when, uh, you know, the population barely remembers a, a, a relative or their grandfather going that's an increasingly shrinking part of the population that actually fought in World War II on Australia's behalf. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that this sort of a thing is going to be coming probably not just in South Australia, but around the rest of Australia too. And we saw this um, early this year in Cook's Cottage down in uh, Fitzroy Gardens. There was plans that that would be taken away because it's harmful to Aboriginal populations and Statues of Cook being defaced, what was it, 2020, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, during Black Lives Matter. Yeah, the Black Lives Matter stuff. It's just this constant rewriting of Australian history, blotting out the names of, you know, Leichhardt, um, great men like that who explored this country, who did a lot of good things. Who actually built the country, (laughs) for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. And you have replaced it with, yeah. What were you going to say? All these. Yeah, we have all these populations coming into the country and they're standing on the shoulders of giants, as to say, and they're just tearing it down, saying we can do better. There's no thoughts of the ramifications or what's going to happen in two generations' time. Well, it's just like a total corporate image that they want to make Australia, that it's just a total blank slate for anyone to come in without changing their culture or adapting it to our country, without converting to Christianity or, you know, embracing the conservative values that built Australia. Um, mm. They they want to just make it so that um, they can bring in people that will do their work cheaply, 
um, who will buy the property without complaint or will rent, con- yeah. who He'll have low consume. standards. Exactly. And so anything like Anzac Day that might bring to mind the purpose of Australia or some greater vision that we fought for something, that we are a nation, that these men, to, men went to war for their children and for their empire. This is something that can't stand in 2023. I was reading a book recently. Um, I highly recommend it. Peter Cochrane's Best We Forget, The War for White Australia. And it's about World War One and about how uh, most specifically Billy Hughes um, committed Australia to World War One because of um, the fear that the Japanese were going to invade Australia, that Britain wouldn't defend the nation. And so by fighting in Britain's World War One, he was hoping that Britain would give them some guarantee of security and he could trade that. And um, yeah, so and it talked about the lead up to this, like the uh, how white Australia came to be such an important fixture in Australian politics. And um, yeah, so we, of course this narrative, which if you dig below the surface of what Scott Morris might say, you know, they were fighting for Australianism, they were fighting for their mates or something like that. No, actually, they were fighting for a specific people, their own people. They were fighting for a specific empire, the British Empire, and they were all Christian. So this is actually a deeply incompatible narrative with the kind of nation that they're trying to build. Did you have anything to add, Matthew? No, that's 100% correct. You know, it's um, The only vestige of Australian culture left is this ochre kind of bogan where, you know, you, do, you go out there and you say, you put on this accent and you say certain words, but it's not anything meaningfully Australian. All that stuff's being washed away, you know, names of streets, names of places, names of islands. You're not, you, you can't even have access to mountains these days, you know, with these land title protections and all that kind of stuff. It's just... um, Yeah, well, like even you, if you see somebody... Um, like flying an Australian flag, they really have pathologized this to be a lower class thing. Yeah, it, it's, that's really what um, this sort of, you know, conflating Australianism or Australian culture with boganism, with, you know, um, being, you know, sloppy or lazy, drinking a lot and, uh, you know, this sort of uh, attitude of not caring about where things are going. Uh, maybe that is in some places an authentic expression of culture, but um I think in many ways that doesn't really represent the Australian that was built. We were, you know, we were an upstanding people. We didn't um, have that kind of thing even 100 years ago. If you look at, like, the old footage of Bradman at the cricket, people there, you know, they'll dress nicely, they'll be behaving themselves. There weren't people getting drunk, getting, you know, passing out in the streets, fighting. It's just a level of civility. And I, look, don't I, I don't know about you, Matthew, but yeah, like I'm, I'm not going to wear a suit everywhere I go. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, we're, we're not saying that you have to be stuck up, no, but like no. th- this sort of uh, saying that Australia is about drinking and meat pies and uh, being on Centrelink. You know what I mean? Like this sort of caricature of boganism is just yeah. completely silly. What the Anzacs are really what we should be looking for, and yet they're tearing that down. Yeah, you know, this country is built on Anzacs. It was built on stockmen. Was built on, you know, hardworking laborers and manufacturers who look after their family. They cared about God. They cared about, you know, the fate of the country. They didn't think about themselves and go to the pokes, abuse their wife and kids, that kind of stuff. That's so commonplace these days. It's just yeah. so well accepted as being Australian. 
but yeah, but like exactly, you see what has come about as they've completely scrubbed clean the record of this higher Australian culture of our sort of I don't know if maybe it's like a Britishness that's been lost, but um, I think there was definitely a native Australian, as in Australian born, not necessarily Aboriginal. I'm speaking about Australian who uh, maybe descended from the convicts or multi generations in Australia, um, but these native Australians. I think that they definitely even developed a higher culture. Even the miners, they would wear suits. Even the men that went into the city to, um, you know, build the Harbour Bridge in uh, Sydney or any of the other massive nation-building projects that we had, Snowy Hydro, these were all well-kept family men. They were upstanding. They were moral. They, this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of go play the pokies on the weekend, you know, have no standards, uh, drink till you're blind drunk sort of a thing is that's like probably if anything that's a result of the complete loss of memory of our actual culture that was fledgling that was in its infancy when we started getting multiculturalism multiculturalism of course just totally derailed any sort of formation of organic australian culture i believe yeah and it's a similar thing across the empire you look at particularly in britain or in new zealand or canada even America, which was part of the empire, it's a similar thing has happened where you've had a very tight-knit community, you know, this, um, and then it just gets blown apart by you know, mass migration. You have communities which for generations, everyone knew each other, everyone, you know, looked out for each other. There was this sense of social welfare and through mass migration, through unbridled capitalism, this has just been disintegrated and there are no support structures. There are no, uh, there's no social bond. People are isolated. People don't feel any connection to the country, to their community, to the, to the city, whatever. And it's really damaging for people's psyche because we've, for generations upon generations, have lived in communities. We've looked out for each other. We've had this sense of mateship of you know community. They love and talking about mateship and then they deny us yeah. this organic mateship that would actually come yeah. from a homogenous community. And like um, you, you kind of, there are vestiges of that left. You know, if you go to a boys' school, like a Catholic school, you do have this sense of mateship, of camaraderie that was probably more prevalent in early Australia. But places like state schools where there is vast amounts of multiculturalism there's you know but mixed gender schools that kind of stuff it's more as you and you see all this like uh, divergent i'm not sure if that's the right word but these um harmful social behaviors with drinking drugs premarital sex um just more prevalent in areas in even schools or in communities where there are higher levels of div diversity multiculturalism a loss of australian character i suppose yeah exactly and you have these disenfranchised young guys and you sort of see maybe it's not like a mass movement but this sort of sha culture sort of a thing you know it's funny to see you know we can joke about it but um really this comes from a loss of actual uh you know like a means for these boys to progress into men into australian men and to be integrated into their country and to serve their, their to have, find a place and serve their purpose within their community and their country. And so what like, what do they turn to if a lot of them, um, you'll see with a lot of tradies, especially they end up wasting huge amounts of their income on gambling, on uh, like these perishable goods that 
they're just a waste of money ultimately they're not building towards anything greater they have no greater purpose they a lot of them aren't christian anymore that's a that's a massive thing and so you see the suicide rates are off the charts drug abuse rates off the charts and um all these things and you see the cultural decay that comes as a result of it but <laughs> to bring it back to the original topic to forget the anzac myths this is what this leads to it leads to this societal decay really because it's an example of a higher australian of somebody that is self-sacrificing honorable disciplined you know what i mean they are committed to their nation to death even so um yeah and they're all christian as well and you had and you just got to think about it you had 14 year olds who lied about their age to go and fight for their country you would not see that today because of this destruction of what it means to be an australian Hmm. And, and there is an appetite i think this is a good point to end it in this section off, but there's a good, there is an appetite for this in, in, in the Australian. You see, it's been this sense of nationalism, of community, of identity has been replaced by sports. And so you have your local team, you have the Penrith Panthers, you have the Brisbane Broncos, you know, the Manly Sea Eagles. This has replaced the sense of community. And so I don't know if there's an easy and quick way to come back to what it was or to like kind of reinstill this sense of an Australian man. Yeah, I, I think it would have to come about when there is a, I don't know if it can come about with postmodernism where everything is so self-conscious and everything is a critique of a critique. I don't think you can have that kind of an upstanding man and him not be torn down by the society around him. But, um, yeah, I guess it would have to come from the Christians, really, because yeah. we've, in a way, we reject what the world thinks. But um, and yeah. yeah, you already have like circles in you know in church groups and in schools and whatnot where this kind of already does happen. Mm. But I don't. I just, it's hard to see anything large scale happening at least now. Or yeah, no, it'd future. have to come from the top, I think, and it would also have to come from. Uh, we'd have to undo all of the harmful actions that have brought us to this point where we have no identity, no culture, where uh, Australia is a, you know, a polka dot map of lots of little speckles of different cultures. You've got the Indian area, the Chinese area, the Lebanese area, this, the Australian area, the affluent, um, you know, white area and stuff like that. And, you know, we would have to probably reunite the nation and get rid of all of these uh, competing visions of a culture or of what Australia is going to be in order to um, allow these young men and young women as well, for what it's worth, to unselfconsciously express that higher culture and that Christianity and that Anzac ethos, really, to return to that level of man. Um, yeah, you'd have to probably undo all of these policies that have come as a result of the decline of that vision. Um so that would that would come from yeah. the top. That would come from the government, I suppose, from policy. Yeah, it would have to be a command and control kind of. But it would be difficult in the sense that, whereas a hundred years ago you had a very homogenous Australia, you had the English, you had the Irish, and then you had speckles of Germans, Italians, and Scandinavians. So you had a very unified culture already, which could more easily be melded into that higher Australian culture. Well, it, organically, today, it organically grew yeah. in many ways. Whereas today you have 
as you pre- as you just alluded to before, you have all these different cultural groups in Australia. You look at Western Sydney, I think that's probably the most prominent example for the listener. You have all these different groups where you drive through um, Cabramatta, you have Vietnamese, you know, you go to other parts, it's Italians, Chinese, and it's just Less so Italians the- these days even. True, As true. Uh, Gabriel Mare might be able to attest, less so Italians <laughs> these days. Less so Europeans everywhere that you go. It's all these other yeah. cultural groups. So, may, yeah, mainly Indians and Chinese these days. But it's how do, you, how do you grab all these groups and try and unify a kind of Australian spirit? Because it's going to be very difficult with people who don't speak English, haven't been in this country for longer than let's say five years, who aren't Christian, mostly. And it's just... um, I think you've got your solution right there in that it it can't really happen with these different uh, cultures and different populations living in Australia. Especially some sort of policy where we're encouraging people to return to their homeland, you know, voluntarily, peacefully. Um, But, you know, we have to do it in Australia first. Yeah. And especially like the number of people we are having and influxing and it makes it harder for basic governance to occur if you've got these like populations within a population that are so large. Like you look at London, you've got areas of London where it's not England. You go there, it's completely different to the rest of the country because there's been these large influxes of immigration in such a short period and that it's so densely populated in one area and it can never become English if you can become English, that is. Which I don't think either of us agrees. That is something that can be just transmuted by saying the right words and being the right way. It's something that's, you know, partially genetic. Yeah. So, standing in stark contrast to that last story, we can have a look at this next story, which is actually an example of a local government doing something, if not necessarily pro-Australia, it is removing something that is anti-Australian or I think is uh, harmful to Australians. Um, Do you want to launch right into that one, Matthew? Yeah, so this is uh, from Yahoo News. It's uh, titled, Council's Major Change to Acknowledgement of Country. Uh, An Australian local council has voted to remove their acknowledgement of country from meetings and official council communications. The motion was presented without notice on November 21, stating officially that, quote, council deleted, delete the acknowledgement of country and banner on correspondence, end quote. The Northern Areas Council in South Australia is the second council in this state alone to remove the statement this month. It comes months after the country voted against enshrining the First Nations voice in the constitution. Councillor Hank Langs proposed the motion and Councillor John Barbarian, second it. Although it passed, only five votes voted in favour, whilst four voted against it. Councillors say acknowledgement separates country. Councillors were told during the meeting that Australia is one country and the policy therefore should be changed. Councillor Langs, who introduced the idea, has not responded to requests for comment and Councillor Barbarian, who supported the motion initially, has formally declined to comment. Now the motion has passed and the next sitting of council in December, there will be no longer be an acknowledgement of country opening their council meeting and it will no longer be included in their council correspondence. So, yeah, I think uh, massive commendations to this council. Um, they've done something that I think 60% of Australians, the 60% that voted against the voice, 
likely will back and are very uh, pleased with. Um, these virtue signaling welcome to countries have just become uh, overbearing at this point. They're in everywhere. They're, I think they do them on airplanes now. They do them in universities, especially in schools, in, in any public meeting, really. Um, and you know what? I think they should go even further. They should get rid of the uh, smoking ceremonies and stuff like that whenever um, public uh, infrastructure is opened. You see, like, if they open a new road, they'll do a smoking ceremony on it. I think we should get rid of this as well. This is a remnant of a um, pagan culture, frankly, of a, uh, a non-Christian religion. And instead, maybe we should get a priest to come and uh, sprinkle some holy water on the road. Maybe that way we'll reduce crashes or something like that. Uh, uh, that's 100%. I don't know if you wanted to add anything, yeah. Matthew. Yeah, no. Um, it's like, even in South Australia, it was 64.2% voted no. And no electorate in South Australia voted yes. So this is a state which extensively is against this sort of um, encroaching Aboriginal control over you know, basic life. And as the article said, it was the second council has done it this year. The other was Playford Council in Northern Adelaide. And it shows, you know, if, you know, if people do the right thing, you know, live a good life and they get involved in local government, they can make an actual change, you know. Uh, there's no point. Some people, you know, they love having a whinge on Sky News and they're, you know, oh, Albanese that, Albanese this, and they don't offer any real solutions where, you know, Councillor Lang, I think it was, he's, you know, he's actually done something that will, you know, it's it's a small thing, you know, but it will, it could become something quite large. Who knows like, how it will snowball yeah. Yeah. and it sets a precedence. You know, if he proves that he can survive, um, you know, the election, the coming election, and uh, keep his council seat. If he um, if he doesn't get completely destroyed by the media, then this will embolden a lot of other people, a lot of other councillors. And um, yeah, who knows how it will work its way up to state federal? I'm not super hopeful on that, but you know, you never know. Yeah, there's over 560 odd councils in Australia, so there's plenty of chances for people to step up, do the right thing, or join council, and just get involved with how their communities run. You know, we, we were talking before about this kind of erasure of community and getting involved in local politics could be a way to kind of reinstill this community spirit in these smaller towns, the, the outer suburbs, that kind of area. Yeah, and really the barrier to entry is very low, especially for local council. And it's a great way to make a name for yourself to work your way up to high offices. If you can demonstrate that you can run a council well, um, I think that, you know, it's yeah. good. Uh, it's a good proof for your electorate that you can be elected to state or federal. And obviously at those levels, there's more power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should also look at uh, the example from Western Australia, where we had a um, candidate who used to write for a right-wing publication that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but he, um, he ran for local council. Um, unfortunately, he lost, um, but he, you know, he was quite conservative on a lot of the issues. He was pro-Australia, pro-Anglo-Celtic culture. Um, he was very, you know, he was in the know about a lot of these topics. And he um, unfortunately didn't win. But I think what he did is he said that even though he lost, he did find a lot of people in his area who actually agreed with him and who helped him out on the campaign. So in the end, he built a tiny uh, community that he can probably grow from there. I know actually out of this effort, one of the people that helped him supposedly um, they're actually starting their own party to oppose the uh, 
the state treaties, which are like the state equivalents of the voices. Um, we'll see how long that project goes. We'll see how far it goes. But um, I think that's a demonstration that even at the local level, you can have an impact. On another topic regarding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, there's a recent class action lawsuit in Queensland. That, um, and there's an article here uh, by the National Indigenous Times. It's titled, Indigenous Families Launch Class Action Against Queensland's Child Protection Failures. Uh, First Nations, children and parents have launched class action class actions against the Queensland government for their systemic failure to reunite families removed under child protection laws. The cases allege Queensland's Department of Child Safety, Seniors and Disability Services breached the Racial Discrimination Act 1975 and failed to follow the child placement principle in the Child Protection Act 1999 by refusing or failing to re- reunite or restore family relationships, failing to support children within the system to learn and practice their culture, language or maintain their connection to country, failing to place children with Indigenous family members. The child placement principle in the Child Protection Act requires the department to place Indigenous children removed from their parents with family or First Nation carers if possible. It is only when these options have been exhausted that First Nation children should be placed outside their community with non-Indigenous carers. It is claimed that in some cases the department failed or refused to provide information about removed children's First Nations families. So, yeah, um, what are your thoughts on this, John? Um, well, I think we'll begin just by saying that uh, this is something that affects the Indigenous community disproportionately. I think yeah. quite a large um, percent of children, comparatively to non-Indigenous Australians, are in child welfare services. Um, and I think I've I'd, I'd read a little bit of the details about this case. and It does sound like there are some circumstances that um, do sound a little bit or from the department's behalf, the child welfare department's behalf. But um, I think if we're looking at this fairly, we know that the child abuse rates are quite high in a lot of these Indigenous communities. So erring on the side of caution, like I think we can say that the child welfare, they're probably not doing this these sort of things malevolently or maliciously to harm the children. Um, I'm sure oftentimes they had good cause or it was an honest mistake if something didn't get um, done properly. It doesn't sound like anything like they were, they were doing this to harm the children. I mean, like, realistically, they're taking the kids and they're, they're giving them to new homes, even if it's not their um, family members. I don't know. Are they family members? Maybe they didn't fit the standards. They're quiet. Yeah, and it's quite hard to see what, what exactly is happening here. It's an ongoing uh, case. But this is a – the Queensland government is the government that was prior to the voice referendum – promoting a treaty with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So this is a government that is very much on the progressive side of this um, issue. And so it's not, you can't really blame it on ballast or any mistreatment, for, I, I don't think. Mm, exactly. Just, um, um, just yeah, to follow up, you you're say? saying on um, Indigenous or Aboriginal children being more likely to be in... Um, these kind of situations. I've got some stats. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like that. the numbers are ridiculous. Yeah, if you want to read them so, out. Yeah, Indigenous children represented 31% of children who were the subject of sustained maltreatments in 2020 2021, 39% of children on care and protection orders at 30 June 2021, and 42% of children out of home care at 30 June 2021. 
And uh, yeah, so these are like ridiculously high numbers. You can imagine how, after looking at hundreds and hundreds of these cases, these child welfare officers, um, they start to, you know, they 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 might start seeing patterns, and they might not find it necessary, or they might gloss over the step where they go seek out family because uh, chances are, if such a high number of them are in welfare, their family members yeah. also have their kids in welfare as well. Because they there is a high degree, especially this is in Queensland, you have these rural Aboriginal communities and you Torres Strait Islander communities in the north where there is uh, ingrained socioeconomic disadvantage, ingrained you know, societal issues of alcohol, drug abuse, child abuse, and can you really blame a social care worker for looking at that, looking at a child being abused in that kind of situation and skipping that step of trying to find a suitable adult within the family or in, within the community and just removing the child from harm? Look, they should be following the processes and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, like obviously this isn't a case of them you know, trying to harm the child or something like that. I don't think that would be the case. Um, we'd have to see some pretty strong evidence to suggest that. Although I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't believe that's required for the lawsuit to be successful. Um, it probably just have to show that it happened, uh, and that it was a result of uh, disinterest or something like that, or of um, apathy. Yeah. But it's just, um, it's just yeah, the we further weaponization of, you know, this. The, they say it's closing the gap. It's the weaponization of Aboriginal disadvantage against the country. You look whether it's the, like they call it, it's the. I think the Australian call it the new stolen generation or something, but it's the weaponization of colonialism, stolen generation or the supposed stolen generation, weaponization of um, land title acts and um, all this kind of stuff for cash money, for land rights, for control over governments. For And it's just, I don't know, it's just disheartening to see people who actually are living in bad conditions, suffering from mistreatment, just their suffering being used as a political tool for people to gain power, money, uh, influence. It's just when we should be really trying to care for people who are vulnerable, marginalised. Yeah, well, um, I know many people are probably going to hear something like this or, you know, for example, with The Voice or with, um, with Native Title and they'll say, look, they had it hard. You guys, the Aussies didn't exactly treat them very well. The the whites treated them pretty bad. You know, they they did all these these crimes during colonialism. Um, well, we read uh, Keith Winshuttle, who's a leading historian on this topic, and he um, he says quite the opposite. He says that the history of colonialism and of the stolen generation was actually constructed for the express purpose of pushing through this kind of legislation. It was always a political tool from the start. Um, he says that it the the purpose of history should be dispassionate. It shouldn't be to create this um, this narrative of white guilt and Aboriginal victimhood, and instead it should be truly reflective of what actually happened. And let's have a look at what actually happened. Um, even back to colonial times, the I think it was Captain Cook even he, they made observations of the Aboriginals and their poor treatment of each other. And um, I, I know even from Captain Cook's journal, he, he mentioned a case of Aboriginal uh, cannibalism. There was in mass infanticide in the Aboriginal community, especially among um, half-caste Aborigines that were often put to death just for the fact that they were born that way. Um, this is because the mothers often didn't 
uh, take over, take care of two children or more at one time, unless the child was old enough to care for itself to some degree. Um, so this sort of child abuse has been happening for a very long time, especially with sexual abuse. We know that uh, the colonists also, the Australian colonists also observed um, grown Aboriginal men with prepubescent wives, young girls. So this is something that has been going on for a very long time. Did you have anything to add, Matthew? Yeah, just to add on to that, um, I can't remember. I, th I think it was Keith Winchell. It could have been another source, but I read it when I was in uni. And it was um, just how modern interpretation of events is so starkly contrast to the contemporary uh, interpretation. So in early colonial Australia, you had a large influx of predominantly male Europeans into the continent. And there's a disproportionately higher amount of males than females. And in Tasmania, there was a phenomenon of uh, European settlers having Aboriginal wives. And so at the time, a lot of the reports and the discussions about it was due to the Europeans' better treatment of Aboriginal women. There was less domestic violence and abuse. But you wind forward 100 or so years, and now the... The prevailing narrative around that is they must have kidnapped them, raped them, you know, taken them away from their community. There's no possible reason why they would leave the Aboriginal communities. And ex exactly, this carries into the stolen generation narrative as well. Uh, many of the high-profile cases of children who were supposedly stolen, for example, Charles Perkins, um, I'm sure many of pe many people who went to school in the same generation that I did heard about Charles Perkins. He was a half-caste or quarter-caste. Aboriginal um, who he, I think he played uh, soccer for Australia, even internationally. And then he came back and he played a big role in the Freedom Rides, which is like a civil rights movement for Aboriginals based on the American equivalent. Um, and so he played a big role in that. Um, anyway, so he, it actually turns out, was not stolen during the stolen generation. His mother gave him over to the authorities voluntarily because uh, she expected him to get a better quality of life and better opportunities in, um, in care rather than uh, that she could provide to him. And um, this actually happened quite frequently where the standards were so much better for the children that um, mothers would give them up voluntarily. Yeah, and, and many cases like that happen and they just get rewritten in history as stolen. You know, the government must have take, come in and just ripped them from their mother's arms well, that's what we see in all yeah. the movie, the dramatizations of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, even from a young age, uh, we saw like documentary level um, recreations of the stolen generation, you know, with like crying mothers running after cars as they took away their children and stuff like that, which is just not the case. Yeah, I'll be honest. I never saw that in my education. I was like that. We stick clear of that kind of stuff. But I guess... Well, you know, talking to a lot of people my age, I'm in the minority. You hear all these stories about people going on trips, people watching the rabbit poo fence and reading books and just how it's just in infiltrated the education system to the point. And it's not even like it's a senior school topic. It's for primary school students. It's for prep students. It's yeah, more exactly. about indoctrination. From, um, yeah, I remember even from primary school learning about how it was the whites who did the colonialism and Aborigines who were the Really? Jeez. Yeah, even from the very young age. I only uh, really realised it looking back at how uh, 
it's sort of like subtle yeah. in many I mean, ways. But wait, uh, how uh, maybe I was just blessed with the schools I went to, but I never experienced that. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. We better wrap it up. Uh, thanks for joining me once again, Matthew. And thank you to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy the content. We'll have another episode out next Tuesday. Um, Tuesday is probably going to be our new schedule. We'll try and have an episode out a week. Um, make sure you stay tuned for all the articles coming out on the National Observer this week. Make sure you subscribe to nationalobserver.substack.com. That's where you can find all of our podcast episodes and all of our articles. Um, and that pretty much is it. Uh, have a great week, Matthew. Yeah, you too, John, and everyone listening. Enjoy the start of summer.